Hey everyone, I'm Renee Bennett. Consider me the girl next door, having conversations that will help challenge and shape your worldview in a culture that has turned our moral compass upside down and inside out. To chat with me further, come join me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. No topics are off limits. I'm really glad you're here. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, amazing people. We are on episode 199. Guys, 199. We are next, what are we? Wednesday. This Friday is going to be episode 200. And I asked you guys who you wanted. You had such an array of um, people that you wanted back, mostly Cameron or Isaiah or Jake. You guys love those boys. But I might actually bring you a really special guest, guys. You're going to have to hold out for this. It, Yeah, I'm going to think about it. I've got a few options. Anyway, thank you guys for listening this far. We've been doing a new collection on climate change. This is part three today. Thank you again to those of you who have done written reviews on Apple Podcast and given uh, beautiful five-star ratings. Thank you. Thank you. Please keep that up. That's amazing. That's so helpful to me. Uh, But today, third part of our climate change collection, so far we've set up a biblical framework of how we are to look at climate. So go back to not the last Wednesday's episode, but the one before. And then last week we pulled apart the government's and climate policymakers' plans to combat climate change, which of course we all know, namely, is to eliminate fossil fuels and generate energy with clean renewables. So we unpacked that. We compared the pair and we based it off a statement um, that's a very true statement that humans, we know humans thrive when electricity is affordable, reliable, and plentiful. And, um, you know, we passed both fossil fuels and renewables by that. And though renewables sound like a really good idea, we came to the conclusion that perhaps we are not quite there just yet. Innovation is great, but when it's going to cause more harm, especially to people, well, that makes it unsustainable. So we're going to do two things today. We're going to look at uh, the example that I didn't get to last week, which was unpacking what was happening in Sri Lanka. So that's where I want to start today, looking at some examples of countries who have adopted or are about to adopt these policies and what it's done to them. And then we're going to move into looking at all of the climate predictions that have been made in history and which of those have come true and what are the predictions uh, in the future. So that's where we're headed today. Um, But let's start off with countries who have adopted some pretty severe climate policies, because if we don't watch that and learn from those countries who are going before us, then that's pretty much the definition of insanity. Like to, to watch someone else do something and not look and observe and take lessons is just crazy and so unwise. We already know that there is not one place in the entire world that has solar and wind energy feeding a grid without full fossil fuel backup because it just doesn't work, okay? And so it's just really crazy to me that governments continue to be pushing down this line when it seems like 
the technology needs a little bit more work first. So based just on that alone, that it's not working anywhere in the world right now on its own, that it it everywhere needs uh, and is dependent upon fossil fuel backup, um, it seems that the government is moving like a train towards ideas, these ideas that at this stage appear to uh, the prediction seems to be that we're going to end up more with a train wreck. And of course, the first people to suffer, which we talked about last week, will always be the most vulnerable. So let's look at Sri Lanka. Uh, I started talking about this last week. James McPherson has done a really great article explaining this. He writes for The Spectator. He's a political commentator, social commentator as well on Sky News, I think it is. Um, So he's got some very uh, kind of humorous articles, but he explained it just really well what's going on in Sri Lanka. So let me unpack this for you in really simple terms. So Sri Lanka has got a president or prime minister, I'm not sure which one they call him, and he is a 73-year-old man, and I'm sure I'm not saying this right, but his name is Gotabaya Rahapaksa. No doubt I said that wrong. Anyway, last year in about April, he made the very green decision to ban chemical fertilizers and go full organic. Now, what we have to understand about Sri Lanka is they have just gotten their country back on track after decades of civil war. So economically, they were doing quite well. And one of the biggest sources of economic growth and success in their country was their exportation of rice and tea. So what's happened is their president, under the influence of the World Economic Forum's global plan for zero net emissions, ordered all of the farmers to ban chemical fertilizers and pesticides. Now, no doubt their president was hailed a complete hero by the world powers. All hail Gotabaya Rahapaksa. Now, while it made him this absolute god amongst the world elites, it made his people the most impoverished that they've ever been. Let me explain why. More than 90% of the farmers up until that time, April last year, were using chemical fertilizers. They were not trained in how to use this new form of organic fertilizers. So within six months, their rice production dropped 20%. Now, this had devastating effects because they couldn't, they didn't have enough rice to feed their own people, but they also didn't have enough rice to export. And that's how they were making a lot of money by exporting their product. And they had to actually start importing food because they couldn't produce enough to feed their own people. Now, isn't this what I said last week? We're idealizing the environment, and that's what this prime minister was doing, idealizing the environment without a thought to how it would harm the people. Now, it wasn't just their rice industry that's been affected, but their tea industry was also massively affected. So their exporting of tea 
brought in more than enough income for them to import food for their people. And again, because of the uh, doing the chemical, uh, sorry, banning the chemical fertilizers and going to organic fertilizers, the production went down and the prices skyrocketed. So what happened was the Sri Lankan government ran out of money to import food because they couldn't, they didn't have enough to export rice and tea. So they weren't making enough money to import food, medicines, fuel ended up running out for their own people. They ended up banning fuel. Their people could not even purchase fuel. Now, you know what happens guys, if there's no fuel, this is a good example of what happens if a country is not properly prepared. So their people were banned from buying fuel. Public transport came to a halt. No fuel means no machinery for farmers to continue with growing food. So then there was even more food shortages. Schools closed and whole industries started collapsing. People were starving. And that's the state that we saw by the time it was hitting the media. Because what happens when people are starving and when they've got no money and they're in complete poverty, well, they started rioting and that's exactly what they did. They stormed the president's palace and he had to flee, like I said last week, to the Maldives. And we look at that and we see the videos and the pictures of thousands and thousands of Sri Lankans uh, setting upon the president's house and, um, you know, storming, storming the gates of their parliament. And we look at that and we go, oh, well, do we really care? And I think it's just human nature not to really care until it actually happens to us. But this is the thing. It could very well happen to us. He All he did was ban chemical fertilizers in April of last year. Barely a year goes by and that is how quickly the country declined into starvation and poverty. And it could very well happen to us because it seems like the governments in power are really determined to be so obedient and be hailed a hero by the World Economic Forum and others in power rather than looking over their, after their own people and their own country. Now, I personally love the idea of organic fertilizers. I think that's a good one. I'm really for that because I hate how much they spray our food. I'm one of these people that has a look at, you know, like I will only buy organic blueberries because berries and strawberries are one of the most chemically sprayed foods that we consume. Um, I hate to think that when we consume rice and when we have a cup of tea that it's been sprayed with fertilizer. But this is the thing. We can't just eliminate and change things overnight, especially when it's not been proven to work over and over again. So if Greta wants to start telling us that whole ecosystems are going to collapse with climate emergency, she's only seeing one piece of the pie because while um, while we're pushing the climate policies, it's actually going to be whole industries that support humanity. That is what is going to collapse. So let's look at what's happening to the Dutch farmers. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but in the Netherlands, the farmers have been coming on their tractors from all over the Netherlands and they've been protesting. And the reason is they're a little bit behind Sri Lanka. 
in that their government is just now starting to push some really um, intense and far-reaching policies. So they've been protesting the Dutch farmers, the government plans that could require them to use less fertilizer, so the same as Sri Lanka, but also they're telling them that they have to reduce their livestock numbers because they emit gases, which is what I told you. If you listen to the What's Hot headlines with Isaiah and I a couple of weeks ago, Jessica Ardern in New Zealand, smart woman, wants to start taxing the emissions from livestock in New Zealand, you know, um, by having a look at, depending on how many cattle that they've got, the amount of emissions and methane coming from their burps and their gases, their farts, in other words. Uh, And so that's exactly what the Dutch government are also wanting to do. So they're wanting to reduce emissions of nitrogen oxide and ammonia, which are produced by these livestock. And they want this all done by 2030. Guys, if you haven't noticed, we're in 2022 and we're halfway through. This is in eight years. Now, the Dutch are protesting this because they know what that means. They know that that means whole industry, their whole industry will collapse. That means that thousands of farmers will no longer be able to continue. It means that their businesses and farms will have to shut down. And so it is just literally blowing my mind that people don't understand the consequence to these, um, this far reaching, you know, zero net emissions by 2030. And we've talked about that over the last few episodes. They actually don't even want it by 2050. They want it by 2030. Now guys, that's talking overseas. It is starting to hit home here in Australia this week, Canberra, have banned the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2035, guys. And the article that I read said that they're the first state to mandate. I literally cannot stand that word mandate. They are the first state to mandate, which means it's going to roll out to other countries. I know Anna Palaget is so proud of herself putting in electrical, electric, um, Uh, you know, the power stations for the electric cars all up and down the coast of Queensland, it is going to come to every state. So they're going to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars. Now, who is this going to hurt? This is going to hurt the low middle income earners because right now you can get a brand new Mitsubishi Mirage for about $14,990. But if we have to all go out and buy electric cars, the cheapest option right now is about $47. Now let's just hope that by 2035, the prices of those electric vehicles are going to come down. I don't even want to get into, by the way, I find it so funny when people reverse their car up to one of those stations and I'm like, guys, where do you think the electricity is coming from to recharge the battery of your car? But anyway, that's for another conversation. So again, who are the ones that are going to suffer? It is going to be the low to middle um, income earners. So I think where I want to go from here, because I've given you enough examples, but I think what's really concerning is that all of this is being done based on predictions. So it's really important to do two things. One is to study the past predictions. 
and see what's their track record, how many of the past climate predictions have come to pass. And then it's a really good idea to look at, well, how are they making the future predictions? Because if we're going to change and potentially harm the lives of people in entire countries, you'd really hope that the future predictions of climate emergency are at least accurate. So I have a really big question around this, and I don't know if I'm just like really dense or I don't understand science or something, but in my very simple kind of uh, mind, unscientific brain, if we can't even predict the weather in a month's time or sometimes even in a day's time, how is it that they're making predictions for decades and even, you know, 50, 60, 70 years to come? Because remember, we're told that 97% of published climate experts agree on the emergency and crisis of our climate. But is it possible that there are other climate experts, they just happen to not have articles published, who maybe see great concerns with how those predictions are being made? And most of all, why aren't we allowed to have debate on this? When one side is cancelled and silenced and healthy, robust debate is banned, something is very wrong. It's dangerous. So let me give you the first example that jumps to mind about this question of how far into the future can we really predict. In March of this year, our premier shut all the schools down on Friday. So she made the announcement Thursday afternoon, quick, go get your kids. All the schools across the state are closing. And her reason was there was warnings of, and I quote directly from her, very dangerous, unpredictable, and in some cases, life-threatening weather event. So that's what we had coming. So everyone was panicking. And everyone went and got their kids and everyone kept, you know, planning on keeping their kids home. Well, the severe weather event that was meant to happen the next day, remember the one that was meant to be very dangerous, unpredictable and life-threatening, it never eventuated and the Premier had to issue an apology. Now, I know that she did do what she thought was right at the time and she also did what Um, made a decision based on the expert advice that she was given. Sorry, I've got to laugh when I hear about the word expert about everything. But, you know, she said anyone in my shoes would have done the same thing. And I think she's right. I would have done the same thing. If I've got weather experts telling me we're going to have a severe weather event and it could be life-threatening, I would have closed the schools as well. But not only was there not a severe weather um, event, There wasn't even bad weather. In fact, we all woke up the next morning. Guys, it wasn't even cloudy. It was literally the most perfect day. In Queensland, we do have very beautiful weather. It was blue skies. It was sun. It was just a full-blown, beautiful, sunny day the next day. And people piled on. They piled on so bad that she had to apologize. So if our weather expert bureau can be wrong just 24 hours out, then my genuine question is how can they predict what the world's temperature will be in the future? And I know that, of course, you're not even allowed to ask the question or debate, but there are plenty of climate experts out there, just not the 97% published ones, who um, 
who actually are very concerned about the way that those predictions are made. But anyway, um, these these predictions, these uh, apocalyptic predictions have actually been being made since the 1960s. This is not new. It didn't start, you know, in the 90s or the 2000s. This started in the 60s. Now, in the past, there have been 41 different predictions made about climate uh, crisis, climate emergency. So out of those 41 predictions, and you can look these up, you'll be able to see all 41 of them. I want to tell you, let's be real honest here, how many of those 41 have come to pass? Have a guess, guys. What do you reckon out of the 41 predictions? Okay, drum roll, not one. Not even one prediction has come true. In fact, all 41 predictions have not come to pass. So the so-called experts have a track record of zero to 41. So it kind of does make it really, really hard to believe when we've had such a bad track record of, of, um, of experts that have given these predictions that have never turned out to be true. And I'm going to read a few of them to you in a moment. So when we're told to believe the science and listen to the experts, it's a little bit difficult with that track record. There basically has been 50 years of failed doomsday predictions. What they do have a perfect record of is getting 41 predictions wrong. You can look it up. There's um, a website called Climate or an article, Climate Experts are 0 to 41 with their doomsday predictions, and you can read them all. Uh, Now, I want to say this. Those predictions were not just made by anyone. They were made by notable people of government and science. Let me tell you a few of them. One prediction of the 41. 1967, it was predicted by climate experts that there would be a dire famine by 1975. In 1971, the experts predicted a new ice age by 2020. Kind of hasn't happened. Kind of had bushfires that year instead. 1978, no end in sight to 30-year cooling trend. Didn't happen. 1980, climate experts said acid rain would kill life in lakes. The life is still thriving in lakes. 1988, they said the Maldives, this one, okay, this one's funny, sorry. They said the Maldives would be underwater by 2018. Clearly not because the Sri Lankan president just um, took off and took cover there. Um, That's why that one's a bit funny. 1989, they said that rising sea levels will obliterate nations if nothing was done by the year 2000. Now, there has been some um, levels, some rise in sea levels. That's definitely seems to be the case. But no nations have been obliterated, well, not by 2000. 1989, New York's... um, New York County's West Side Highway would be underwater by 2019. It's not. In 2008, climate genius Al Gore predicted that we would have an ice-free Arctic by 2013. It's still got ice. And 2005, they predicted that there would be 50 million climate refugees by 2020. Hasn't happened. So now we can definitely argue that, well, we've got new research since then, and that's true. And our technology has vastly improved since the 60s, and that is certainly true. And the thing is, if you use that argument, in another 10 years or 20 years, we're going to know a whole heap more, again, that's going to alter and update what we think to be true today. 
Now, let me just say that we look back and scoff and go, they didn't know anything in the 60s and 70s. We know so much more now. Well, we think we do until another 10, 20, 30 years down the track when what we know then is more than likely going to alter and update what we think to be true today. So can anyone really truly predict the future? We can certainly try, but our history has shown in almost every area that it's very hard to predict the future with the knowledge and technology that we have now. But one prediction has certainly turned out to be true. And that is that predictions have always been almost 100% inaccurate. Now, there are actually many scientists that disagree with current predictions and who say that we simply cannot predict something as complex as our climate. Now, I am not here. Today is not about arguing which predictions are or are not accurate. That's not the point of today's episode. I'm simply saying we will never know because we never have known. And again, to make policies that will drastically change people's lives and potentially bring massive harm to entire countries without first trying these policies out. And even worse, observing and learning from other countries who have just tried it and failed like Sri Lanka. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to throw the whole idea of improving our living to have less effect on our climate totally out the window. You know, we should be innovating and we should be looking at ways that we can have less of a um, an, an imprint and look after our world better. And I've said that over and over again, we do consume too much and waste too much. But I think we have to do this with wisdom. You know, why can't we instead take a balanced view and take this a little bit slower and say, hey, you know, Sri Lanka moved too quick too soon and the impact was catastrophic. So how can we take that lesson and try it differently in another country? So the idea of banning chemical fertilizers, that's a good one. But why don't we first teach certain groups of farmers how to plant and harvest crops with organic fertilizers? And then when we've got that down pat and that works, then we can roll it out to more and then more. But instead, we take this hard approach where everyone's got to do, you know, like the Sri Lankan president, ban it, not even just slowly do it, but ban it right now. And it was, it's been absolutely catastrophic. So what are some of the predictions that they're making for the future? So scientists are using computer models of the climate system to better understand these issues and to project future climate change. So that's what they're doing. They're using modeling a little bit like the coronavirus modeling, which um, that probably is not a good example because that doesn't give us much confidence because as you can see right now, the modeling of that has never turned out to be correct either. Um, but they're using computer models to try and better understand and predict. Um, But because it is difficult to project far off future emissions and other human factors that influence climate, scientists use a range of scenarios using various assumptions about future economic, social, technological, and environmental conditions. 
Okay, so did you catch that phrase? Because it is difficult, and I'm getting this from their websites, because it is difficult to project far off future emissions, what they're doing is they're um, they're basically typing a range of scenarios into their computers using different assumptions. So in other words, they're putting different data into the computer because they don't really know. So from that data, from a range of different uh, scenarios, they're plotting different pathways from those that assume greenhouse gases will continue to rise to those that assume that emissions have already peaked and are now on the decline. Now, you can check that out, what I'm saying, and uh, a graph that reflects that on change.chicago.com. And then a lot of this information too, I've gotten from Future of Climate Change um, and Climate Change Science from the US EPA. So they themselves say that their predictions are all dependent on what climate model that they pump into the computer. So while some scientists predict all sorts of catastrophic outcomes, there are many who say that we simply cannot predict, but we don't hear about that. We're not allowed to listen to them. We're only allowed to listen to those climate experts that have had published papers in these areas. But we need to understand and ask the questions about how are they putting, how are they getting these predictions? And it's because it depends what they pump in to the computer. So while they have predictions about future temperatures, they say um, that predictors about future rain, storm and snow events are even more difficult to accurately predict. So in other words, while temperature is very difficult to predict, almost impossible, I mean, as you could see, we can't even predict it sometimes a day ahead. They say that if we try and predict other weather events like rain, storm and snow events, that's like even more difficult to predict. So really, we just don't know. They can't be sure that their predictions are accurate. So while we should be doing more and being innovative in ways to look after our earth and finding more natural ways of living, yes, big advocate here I am, we shouldn't be doing it by constant doomsday predictions that they say with such confidence, but really don't know how accurate they are. And meanwhile, we're scaring a young generation to the degree that it's affecting their mental health, which I talked about last week, which has been surveyed recently on Missions Australia. And we're pushing governments to want this hero status, um, you know, before places like the organizations like the World Economic Forum. And yet at the same time that they're doing that, they're, they're going to be bringing um, harm on the very people that they take an oath to serve and to predict, to protect, not predict. I've said the word predict too many times. So are the decisions being made maybe perhaps more on emotional rather than practical grounds? Are decisions being made on the fear of what could happen instead of the scientific data that it definitely will happen? Because like we said, that data really um, does not exist. They really are guessing. That's why they use the word predictions. So guys, there you go. That's kind of rounded out our third episode uh, on climate change. So I hope you enjoyed that. The first one, setting up the biblical framework, which is what helped to 
give us the basis and the foundation for the next couple of episodes. Last week, we we actually spent quite a bit of time talking about how this is really stressing a generation um, and the responsibility we have to them and to our children. Um, but also we looked at comparing fossil fuels and renewables. And again, I'm not for one and against another at all. In fact, my natural personality would tend towards more natural ways of living and less chemical fertilizers. And you know me, I've got essential oils next to me right now. I'm all for that, but I think we need to do it in a way. Well, not, I think, I know we need to do it in a way where we need to keep our energy Like we said in the second episode, affordable, reliable, and plentiful. And if that can't happen, then we need to, like we've done today, look at examples of countries that have gone before us and let's take their mistakes and go, let's learn from that and let's do it better. And then, of course, we finished off with looking at the history of predictions and the way a little bit, a little bit of the science, well, very basic information on how they're making predictions about the future. So I think these are all things that we need to consider. I think these are things that a young generation needs to know because we have got a young generation now who have fully gone through school and um, have been indoctrinated with an ideology. Like I said, when I was a kid, I was absolutely convinced that all the polar bears were going to die because of the the hole in the ozone layer. And of course, I know now that totally ripped off. That's not true. They're absolutely thriving. Um, And so I think we need to be really careful and we need to ask questions and we need to be able to have debate on this because I think at the end of the day, we actually all want the same thing. And that's a really good place to start from is that we all want to look after this planet And so it should be allowed that we can have some healthy debate on what is best, mostly for humanity and then for the planet. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I think we'll leave the climate change collection there for now and come back in a couple days for episode 200 and we'll see what I dish up for you there. Anyway, guys, have a wonderful week and until then, I will see you soon. Bye.